Anyone who's following the AI space right now is probably also aware of the interesting nature of the venture landscape. After ChatGPT was released, investor interest and money seemingly flooded in. It's felt like a let a thousand startups bloom kind of moment. But the same questions always persist. What are the ingredients to building a scalable, competitive business? And where does AI fit in? Miles Grimshaw brings a unique perspective to this landscape. He spent a few years at New York-based Thrive Capital, where he sourced deals with a number of well-known startups, including Lattice, Mapbox, Benchling, and Airtable. As general partner at Benchmark, Miles has recently led a $10 million seed round for Langchain, a framework for developing LLM-powered applications that has now become a startup. Miles and I spoke about his experience in VC, what prompted, no pun intended, his recent investment in Langchain, his perspectives on the AI landscape, and how AI startups today can differentiate themselves. Before my usual spiel, I just want to quickly call out that we got our first Apple podcast review of the year and have been seeing a few nice comments on Spotify. I do just want to encourage, if you've been enjoying the show at all, to leave us a couple of words on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you happen to be listening to this. It really does help us a lot. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you enjoy these episodes, you can follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast episode. You can also follow us on Substack to get regular notifications whenever we release a new article, newsletter, or podcast episode. You can also find our online magazine at thegradient.pub, where we regularly publish essays by the sorts of people I interview on the podcast. And finally, If you enjoy the episode, it would mean a great deal to us all if you'd consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this episode. It helps more listeners like you find what we're doing and helps us bring in more interesting guests for you to listen to. But now, without further ado, Miles Grimshaw. Miles, you are now the newest partner at Benchmark. You joined in 2020 from Thrive, where you've been since 2013. And so as I always start these interviews, I'd love to know a little bit about your background. How did you get into venture capital? And I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey to what you're doing now. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me join this, Daniel. It's kind of crazy to think about um, looking back now, but you know, I was in college, actually, on the East Coast, and um, and and sort of the question of the friends starting to build fun ideas, right? AWS has had emerged, and Stripe had just kind of got started, so you could take payments on the internet even more easier than you know in PayPal or whatever. And uh, uh, sort of Rails was out as a, a as a development framework, and a lot of friends and I, I was kind of a really bad engineer. But a lot of friends and I would just be tinkering. Um, and I think probably not too long after, you know, suddenly the Facebook movie came out and this idea of, of students starting something in a dorm. You know, the old version was, I guess, you start 
garage. The new version was you started it in a dorm. And, and we would just build like fun web apps um, and, and constantly sort of be tinkering and exploring. And I was never, I never had sort of like an idea that captivated me, but always enjoyed and, and was fulfilled by helping out others. And at the time, New York, you know, didn't have a very big startup community in many ways. Uh, this was around the time when people were saying, could there be a Silicon Alley? And then and then even more silly, sort of this idea of could there be a Silicon Roundabout was, I think, the name given to the UK idea. And it seems preposterous to, to, to look back on um, this idea of could companies, could, could technology companies build out, be built outside the valley. But, but that was really in some sense a question at that point in time. You know, Mongo, I guess, was really early and Datadog wasn't really in New York yet and, um, and some others. Anyway, so a group of us sort of ended up coalescing in New York around that time, the early 2010s. And that became Thrive Capital, um, was probably the third or fourth person there investing. And um, I started leading out a lot of our software investing, application software, as well as developer software. So things like Segment and Mapbox, as well as uh, vertical applications, a company called Benchling, which sells life science research, a horizontal Airtable. And then um, very much for, for better or for worse, a generalist. And so actually invested in a bank in the UK called Monzo, which... Um, when I partnered with them, it was probably like 30-odd people and now has something like six or so million UK accounts, which is a insane penetration since the UK population is probably only like 60, 70 million people. And so a, a, a range of, of different sort of companies and business models and products. And then, uh, as you noted, uh, was invited and joined the Benchmark Partnership late 2020, early 2021. And that's been a great joy. Before we get a little bit more into Benchmark in particular, the 2013 to 2020 time, I guess, is an interesting one for, I suppose, a number of reasons. And there are two questions I have about your experience during that time. The first may be preparing the way for thinking about some of your commitments, your beliefs as an investor. You mentioned a couple of the companies you identified and invested in, Segment, Benchling, Airtable, that seemed like very good calls. And so I'm curious a little bit about what led you to identify and invest in those companies. Yeah, I would say um, as I, I always think about being, in, in, and I think investors in some sense, certainly um, early stage investors should think about being really sort of change aware, change seeking. Change is where gaps open up, you know, new strategies Different attacks, different different solutions can be possible to you know, emergent or existing needs, and so sort of change seeking and change curious is certainly I think sort of the default psyche, default behavior pattern. Seeking that out, trying to learn um, and, and explore, should be default sort of cultural habits. I think of of an investor, and so it, it, they actually came in some sense from that that curiosity. I could we could touch on them briefly. So it's not to totally bore, bore your audience going in too much depth, but segment came out of actually had invested in a number of the e-commerce challenges, D2C businesses, Harry's and Warby Parker's and a few others. And they had a, a numerous different sort of software platforms, technologies that they were using that touched their customers. There was the order system, there was the marketing systems, there was the text communication, there was the email communication, there was, there was real 
application sprawl to be able to sort of serve uh, a business. And you had customer data in all these sort of places. And you go and talk to, you know, Snowflake and others came out of this idea. But you, you go and talk to the, the companies and how they were orchestrating all that data. And it was, first of all, you weren't going to end up with a single monolith application that was going to do everything you're going to need. You're going to pick best in breed. But you had all of this fragmentation. And Segment came along. It was really simple. I saw it. Um, uh, I first met Peter not long after the first library launch, Analytics.js, which is an open source package he put out there. Um, the famous story is uh, Calvin. Peter's co-founder was like, we should put this out there. They built it for themselves. And Peter was like, that's silly. No one will ever use that. Why, why, why should we even bother? And obviously it took off. But it was a really simple, beautiful initial and, and, and built a lot more, obviously a ton more encapsulation to this idea of how could we um, further sort of at the root simplify and, and unify all the complexity of solutions that we use to engage with customers in a digital manner. And so that was the change, the sprawl of those applications and customer interactions leading to the need to a solution that sort of change where benchling was was CRISPR and, and large molecule development was sort of just emerging. I think the CRISPR paper was written, call it like 2013-ish time frame, 2012, I forget exactly, but like early 2010s. And uh, Saji and, and Ashi, the co-founders of benchling had been up at, at, at MIT um, had a lot of friends who worked at the Broad Institute in Feng Zheng's lab, sort of at, you know doing doing genetic engineering, and they just started building software for that. And so you had you had new scientific capabilities possible that begot uh, a need for 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 better software to manage it. You know, simply speaking, um, large molecules much more complex than chemistry. You can draw chemistry on a uh, on a whiteboard, but you can't you can't draw all the ACTGs as easily on a whiteboard. You know that's not not as possible. So you need better software. Change aware, change new opportunities were possible. You didn't know how big it would get, but but there was real change. And and, and Airtable, similarly, it might seem silly and sort of simplistic, but it was true. Again, you you, you go back in time, the early 2010s, like let's call it up until 2015, we were all still like learning how to use Google Docs. Right, like if you really were using Google Docs in 2010, 2011, you were pretty early. I forget when it launched, but but like it was still early in that way. And I had some friends who were product managers at Google in that time period, and uh, and they were on the Google sort of docs and, and and collaboration team, and they spent enormous amounts of efforts doing Microsoft Word interoperability. It was. You, you're not going to start in a Google Doc, so you got to get you got to get stuff out of you know Google Doc, Excel, whichever one you want to pick. You got to get stuff out and back in because like you'll only do the last little bit here, and uh, and they, they chipped away at all of this, right? And by 2015 or so, 2016, it was obvious to me that we were all going to start that. You know, that it was a trend line that was that was that was clear, and and I start to wonder what what would native look like. What would not interoperable, maybe interoperable as sort of a smaller feature, but not as a core feature, what would it mean to be natively some of these core primitives, core productivity tools in a browser where you started there? What, what, what would unlock? And, and Airtable, you know, a database is so core to every, every piece of work. A spreadsheet is a simple interface to a version of a database. A spreadsheet doesn't have to be a database, but a database is core and a spreadsheet is the most easy to understand. Everyone is, is, is getting an interface. And the idea of Airtable as a structured database in the browser is easy to use as a spreadsheet. As people start to say, I'm here native, what do I look for next? Seemed, uh, seemed really exciting. And obviously, databases are, are pretty great business models. 
and uh, and so long long rambling across all of those three but i think the the the, the core of it is um to really be change aware which obviously is uh, is why uh, why one spends so much time in ai right now um, because if you're if you're change seeking um, and asking what can endure from that, right? Because if it's if it's fleeting and and, and momentary, and COVID had a lot of potentially those momentary uh, points in time changes, but not enduring. But if there's sort of enduring change that can happen, that creates really that that creates windows for new companies to get to go run through. These are some really interesting ways to think about the different sets of desideratum that went into looking at the different companies you invested in. And I want to begin segueing, of course, towards today's AI landscape and how you look at it as an investor. And perhaps by way of that, this is sort of my second question on the 2013 to 2020 range of time. But of course, now many investors, including yourself, are very active in the AI space and thinking a lot about it. For the 2020 backwards time, this is retrospectively known to many of us in the AI space, of course, as sort of the decade of deep learning, when we saw AlexNet work really well for computer vision, when the transformer came out later in the decade. And of course, in the stories you've given, a lot of your focus was on these different software companies. But was AI on your radar at all during that time? And I guess if not, I'm curious what brought it to your attention? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, d- during that time frame, um, I would say it was actually we were looking back the other day. My partner Eric had made a presentation. I think it was about twenty. It was twenty seventeen, actually. Yeah, it was early twenty seventeen. He made a he gave a presentation on um, like is AI hype or not, and I looked at the date, and it was actually something like six days before the Transformer paper came out. <laughs> wow, what timing! Now he he was making the argument in it that it's really exciting, but also you know really early and incumbents game in many ways, and obviously six days later you know the the architecture that un, that unleashed all of this that came about, and so again things can change and and change fast, but I would say in many ways it was a part of many of the uh, you know companies and, and and the products that we invested in right um, it wasn't it wasn't it unto itself. And I think that's probably going to be true again, right? Where there's been a moment in time where maybe just being the model is is sort of good enough um, for right now. You know, you could be a co-pilot experience. And in some sense, a co-pilot experience is a lot of just the model. It's not entirely true. There's a lot, there's a lot of um, um, simplistic sort of uh, limited UX work around it. But th- th- there is that moment in time. But, but I think we'll move to a place where um, it's a part of a bigger experience, um, not the only thing that you're that, that you're buying, right? Mid journey just to generate an image is actually like it in Photoshop is part of a holistic application experience, and I think that that was certainly um, very true in, in in that period where it could be a way to deepen va- expand value and deeper lock in for customers in an existing application experience, and so I would say many of our you know, certainly the, the big social networks have a ton of ML, you know, ML AI, right? As, as core to it, you know, in, in, in Airtable and stuff, you'd have machine learning over, you know, data values and benchling, you'd have machine learning that would be running on, on, on the scientific data, et cetera. And so we thought of it as a, um, as a part of a product, but, but not primarily an investment on ourselves. That said, 
there were a few exceptions and there's always exceptions. My partner, Eric, invested in, in Cerebrus, which is an AI training chip and an inference system. And, you know, the idea there was we will have more AI workloads to and, and AI um, training needs and compute needs. And what would it what would be possible if you, you know, built one of the biggest chips? Um, and so that was infrastructure to enable, uh, you know, didn't know that didn't know that sort of large language models and all that, but but the trend obviously for the need more holistically in the industry was that. And so you weren't a specific instantiation, but rather enabling more of what might be possible. And so that was one investment. And then my, my partner, uh, Matt Cole, had invested in DeepL, which actually was probably one of the first teams to, to take the Transformer architecture. And the Transformer paper was actually written in about translation and take that and actually build a translation service using that transformer architecture and, and, and that company's doing um, incredibly well. I think they just raised at a billion odd plus or so, you know, very, very, very healthy revenues. And, and they're a translation product, literally the best translation service and more colloquial um, translation product. And so, so we've done those. I'd, I'd invested a bit personally in scale AI, probably in that period, um, saw in, uh, in, in, in self-driving, which is where they really found um, voracious product market fit, you know, pull for lots of labeling needs. And obviously that expanded into, you know, RLHF and others um, in, in an exciting way. And so it was very, unlike it being um, potentially now where, where, where really in some sense, very differently to them, where you had ML, where you had, if you had lots of existing data uh, or, or you could do something now. You have this sort of creative computing platform that could expand into it. it really changed the way UX could work. Really changed the way business model work, and and could be more universal. There in that period, it was you've still got to be a great great core application, and it's an incumbent. It's certainly an incumbent's opportunity to add. And so we were um, we did a little, but uh, but but certainly weren't, you know, in the same way we won't now, we won't just have an AI fund, <laughs> right? Like we were, you know, we won't do that now. We wouldn't do that sort of a thing then um, in the same way we didn't have a iFund back when the iPhone came out and, uh, and everyone then would get, you know, there literally was an iFund that got, got created and we're seeing some of that behavior again now. Back in 2009 or so, someone created an A fund to the iFund because it would invest in only Android first. Interesting. Um, and so, you know, you have your open AI fund, you know, but separate, imagine that your LLM fund and your, you know, um, your diffusion fund or something. It's like, no, we, we won't do any of that. Going too far. Uh, gone too far. Or, or it's exciting and it's great for the sort of ecosystem in some sense. But you know, we didn't have an iPhone, but we still invested in, and led, the, led, led them with the first ball partners to Uber and Snap and Instagram and Twitter and stuff. And so anyway, I've, uh, I've, I've digressed to the future, but, um, but, but, but sporadically. This is interesting. Let's hone in a little bit on a specific recent investment of yours. And earlier when you were talking about your different investments at Thrive, you spoke to this theme of simplifying complexity. And of course, in thinking about AI, you've spoken to the idea of let's not just have an LLM and that's sort of the product you're selling, but building it into something greater. So recently you led an investment in Langchain, which I think speaks to both of these themes in a number of important ways, because it is trying to provide this interface for people to more simply work with large language models and develop applications out of them. So I can kind of see hints of what you're thinking might have been, why this seemed like a good idea to invest in, 
but I'd love to hear the story from you. Yeah, Daniel, you pitched it for me. I don't need to do anything. Uh, you know, look, the back, the backstory to, to having a relationship with, with Harrison and Ankush and, and ending up having them pick me as their partner, I would say in, at some point in 2022, uh, again, change seeking, change curious, um, started to see some of the early products emerging that were using, um, you know, open AIs, I think at that point, GPT-3, um, and then started to see GPT-J and GPT-Neo come out in the open source, um, which were, which were, which some, some teams were starting to, you know, use in their products to create experiences. And yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't what we have now, but you went, whoa, that's really impressive. That's really interesting. And sort of just started to, 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 you know, investigate, to peel back the onion, to, to, to go be curious, you know, ended up um, following a bunch of the papers that were emerging that time. You know, uh, it was really early to sort of instruct GPT and that sort of idea, RLHF was just starting to sort of be a concept in the late 2022s, React as a sort of prompting strategy, obviously. Chunyu um, sort of started working on that and was, was sort of curious as to how a very much technology breakthroughs um, could, could start to manifest in product capabilities and possibilities. And, um, and so through that, ended up seeing Langchain in late 20, you know, fall 2022 come out and started spending time with Harrison. And he wasn't even sure he was going to make it into a company and a, and, and a product and, and pursue it full time. But he, he, he had done the um, simple but beautiful thing of pulling in a bunch of abstractions um, for everyone else to, to use over various language models and starting to uh, some cool prompting strategies and, and, and connections to other tools. To make to make at that time what was just starting to tinkle you know tickle the imagination um, agent type experiences you know possible and we started spending a lot of time together in in, in early 2023 obviously he said I want to you know want to form a company and chase this and and we said we should partner up together and as you said at some level the the idea the the, the pursuit right now is is very simple and this is gonna this is a long journey ahead um, and sometimes you want to try and jump many steps ahead, but, but it's, going to take a, it's going to take a while for all of this technology to get pull, pulled through uh, in, in, in the fullest sense. It's been voracious how fast it has been, but it's still going to take a while. And, and I think they, uh, we're really focused on the core um, abstractions, integrations, tooling to make that build experience and over time, the sort of run experience of application development simple. And like everyone shouldn't end up having to rewrite a, a bunch of the same code, a bunch of the same abstractions. We should make it easier for the tens of millions of application developers who are coming into this now, right? We've had um, a ton of machine learning engineers, AI engineers, researchers, et cetera, in this community, obviously, for a long time building and shaping, and, and and but we have now an order of magnitude more individuals coming saying who are application engineers saying I need to build something. I need to. I need to. I want to tinker. And they're not machine learning experts. You know, model intricacies isn't there. It isn't going to be their forte. They're going to say, how can I bring this? And so the tooling to make that build experience easier, and then the confidence um, to put it into production. Is uh, is obviously two big prongs that that we're really focused on, and the Harrison has done a phenomenal job, obviously capturing capturing that early excitement of the of the community and continuing to 
um, push as hard as possible to deliver and keep pace with um, the change and, and deliver as much as possible simple and flexible core abstractions. And, and we, have a, we have a work cut out for us to keep up with the, the, the demand of, of where people are pulling the project, but also the changing substrate of, of, of the models and, and capabilities and, and tooling. And so it's, we're six months in, feels like two years in a normal, you know, maybe a, maybe a 20 normal company. But, but, uh, but that's the kind of core ethos. Um, what was the change aware that this would be really interesting application experiences would be possible and it would require um, a, a new tool chain with standard abstractions to empower every developer. Let's talk a little bit about what that can empower and how you think of it from the lens of investment. I think one very important thing you spoke to was your perspective on what I feel is a little bit of a mismatch. I think that when ChatGPT came out and we sort of saw the follow-ons from this, people building all of these cool ideas, things like AutoGPT, there was this sense, and I think that people like me who are following AI very closely do feel this quite viscerally, that things change very quickly. There's so many papers to keep up with it, and it feels like a new record has been set in terms of performance or something new kind of happens every few days. And as fast as things seem from that perspective and the ease with which some people will turn that observation into, we are witnessing an exponential growth curve. I think you spoke to something very important about this, which is that it takes time for this technology to be adopted. And there are rate limiting steps and just because you have a super powerful language model, that doesn't mean everybody can, that doesn't mean everybody should be adopting it into all of their critical processes immediately, right? And so I think that at multiple levels, at the perspective of individual products, at the perspective of an economy, you can't take, I think, this, we are experiencing you know, exponential growth and performance or something like that, and then immediately say, this is going to impact the economy in the same way that it looks like when we're just staring at a bunch of papers all the time looking at how cool this is. And so I'd love to know a little bit about how this manifests in your thinking as an investor, when you're looking at the different visions that entrepreneurs might have for how this technology is going to play out, for what they want to do with it, when they're thinking about building particular experiences, applications. I'm a bit curious about maybe how that mismatch manifests for you, both in your thinking about the investment landscape broadly, but then also when you're looking at particular investments. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would say, you know, like you, ChatGPT was um, an amazing moment. I think of it in many ways like the Netscape moment for this new technology where, you know, Netscape was in some in many ways sort of the first browser most people ended up really using and it, sh it allowed us to really see what was the internet beneath it and what was what was the technology that was there and i think ChatGPT sort of did that for um all of us most of a lot of society around the idea of these language models and so that's amazing because put it put in all of our consciousness i would also say um i don't know about you that excitement I think is 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 wonderful to lean into and and is really special and it's happening in so many different ways right so one is just one's own psyche actually I think right now like I I, I am 
the, the idea of prompting, the idea of your context window. I don't know. I find myself thinking about my own thinking with, these, with this new terminology in many ways. Like, how should I, uh, you know, how should I prompt myself, actually, as, you know, to, to, to get the best out of myself? Or, or um, you know, what are the limitations of my own, you know, sort of memory and stuff? And so that's kind of just been fun. It's changed how it's given you, uh, you know, probably some other people, some new vernacular for thinking about just your everyday life. I, I don't know about you, but ChatGPT, I, I find myself doing things that I wouldn't go to Google for. I was just on vacation and I wasn't going to go to Google and look up a bunch of sort of random questions for where I was. You have to troll through a bunch of you know, garbage and but but ChatGPT I went to and got history and some fun facts and it might have hallucinated but fine that was fine I was I wasn't I wasn't critically important and so just your own behavior the fact that like we have this tool that is impacting and I don't know I'm at least viscerally feeling it every day is kind of fascinating and then you step a little farther afield and again it's not to say this is a specific instantiation of of a business per se, some, some they are, but just uh, it tantalizes the imagination. One would be all of the agent stuff that we are seeing. I think that um, you had the author of um, Simulacra and this idea of sort of June, yeah. LLMs, yeah, June and, 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 and sort of a Sim City and them forming relationships. I think uh, the Cicero research out of, uh, out of Meta for sort of gameplay was really interesting. The Voyager paper of sort of using the language models of the brain to figure out how to play sort of Minecraft, um, you know, self-instructed was, was, was fascinating. So th that's one area that's, that's captivating. Who knows what that turns into, but just like what's possible now. And I think if you're investing early and, and thinking about the frontier, you, you start with like, wow, and, and, and imagination and possibility. And so I think that, that, that feeds it and, in a good way. If you live in San Francisco and the Bay Area, as you do, you gotta go ride a cruise. You know the self-driving cars are driving around the city, like, and 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 a bunch of those are transformer architectures. Like you, you want agentic AI, like it's right there driving around the streets of San Francisco in a in a remarkable way. So so that's really um, special. And then and then and then the, this architecture. Obviously, we've seen in images, we've seen in language. Um, I've been spending some time in bio, and. You know, physics, um, so math in, 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 um, in some ways was sort of the language to describe physics and, and make that possible. And, and, and the idea that ML could be the language that allows us to understand and, and decode the language of biology is really exciting. So you've seen people start to take the, literally the language model architecture and use it to uncover and decode protein sequences and protein structures and allow us to do generative proteins, proteins that we wouldn't have found through natural screening or natural directed evolution in labs. That's just wild. The, 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 the idea that, you know, all these amino acids we could explore. Such. So th there's so much happening that, that I think is absolutely um, riveting. The flip side to that, though, is once thinks about investing and, and, you know, over time manifesting this into specific companies with missions is incumbents are not sitting still. And I'd say that, that is one thing that is really different to what happened, let's say, in mobile, which was sort of the very different to language models, in my opinion, but the sort of the last meaningful change, right? I think, I think in some sense, language models are probably more similar to, you know, the first transistor or, or, or chip or the internet, you know, but like more broadband, like more like that than they are mobile, but people analogize to mobile as the thing we most recently lived through. But that was wildly different. It took 
you know, as, as two little interesting history bits. The iPhone launched in 2007, the App Store in 2008. We invested in Instagram in 2011, so three years um, after the App Store. Facebook announced their first mobile, uh, mobile native app in 2012, I think it was. And so you had this like four year window from App Store to like Facebook launching its first native app. You know, take Microsoft. Microsoft bought, which, it, it, and, and I talk about these because, you know, those sorts of companies move incredibly fast. Take Microsoft, which obviously has, has had a dizzying number of co pilot announcements across every single surface area that's possible, um, as well as obviously the open AI investment. Take Microsoft in 20. Satya became CEO in 2014, I think it was. Microsoft bought Nokia in 2013. It was still like this idea of we want to control you know, the, the, the hardware. And one of Satya's first announcements was Office for iPad. Like the, 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 the hey, we've acknowledged that we will allow our software to be on other people's, um, you know, other companies' uh, hardware. Like we'll play at the application level. Like we don't need to own, own the OS, right? Like this was... What's that? Like six odd, seven odd years into the iPhone. And part of it took a while as well because, and this is where there is an interesting analogy though, part of all of that, of the incumbents moving slow was there was literally a distribution constraint, which was it took a while for the hardware to go get get bought and installed and made, right? You had to have these iPhones created. And in 2008, which is the first full year after the iPhone was launched, they, uh, I think uh, Apple sold like something like 13 million. Um, and it took about three years for 50 million iPhones to be sold globally, right? Like 50 million. ChatGPT is more than 50 million signups in the first, you know, three months or whatever, right? Like first two months. Um, it literally just took a took a while. Now, the, 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 there might be a little bit of a, a, an analogy in some sense, actually, to um, <laughs> GPU shortage right now, which is like we actually have to get all of these, you know, things made and installed and online. And I think you are seeing actually potentially some constraint of what will be possible relative to what is possible today as a function of that. You know, the ability, if you're going to go put some of this in, in a production experience for your customer, like you got to have decent nines of reliability as a baseline, right? And, and like, that's actually not entirely clear you're going to get that right now. If you want to work on fine tuning, with some of the bigger model providers, OpenAI announced they'll allow that later this year. Would they would they be allowing that right now if there was no shortage of GPUs? Maybe potentially, but like, are you going to do that right now if you if you have a shortage? And so th- th- there might actually be sort of a, a similar hardware rollout kind of timeline consideration here. Anyway, but incumbents are moving so much faster, um, and I think as as we look at startups, I think startups sh- right now shouldn't learn the lesson of what is successful today. And the lesson of what is successful today, I think, in many ways, is sort of a co-pilot-esque experience, right? That is that is where you see most an- announcements. Microsoft obviously calling everything co-pilot. Shopify had a had a beautiful announcement that they just made of of what they called Sidekick. And, and to me, co-pilot is entirely an incumbent's game, and it's an incumbent's game because the incumbent owns the data, they own the distribution, and it's into their distribution. They own the user experience. It rides right on top of the existing user experience. They own that user experience. And they own the business model. It's like a seat upsell or, or, or it's, it's tied to a seat, which is a lot of how many of these you know, software companies monetize. Um, it's a co-pilot. Like you still need the pilot. 
um, it's a seat-based business. So they've got data distribution, user experience, and business model. And I think it's obviously a, a fantastic strategy for an incumbent, but I think it's an incumbent strategy. And I think startups and challenges should, 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 should be change-seeking and, and run through this window, but are going to have to do more. Um, are going to have to think more differently. I, I might even, I'd probably push them to start from the lens of, you know, Copilot kind of assumes the models aren't that great, right? Right. It assumes you need a human doing a doing a ton of it, right? Being in the loop. What happens if you assume it's pretty good? Or what happens if you assume that you'll take on the errors and the issues of them and and handle them as part of a holistic product experience? And I think if you go to mobile again, if we go back to that, just because it's the last meaningful you know, epoch in some ways, the, the, the challenges that really came about, I think, were ones that offered a, even if you go to mobile and you go to, you know, internet, I think the, the challenges that really get to emerge are, are ones where you have a very different business model. And so take that as, you know, Salesforce going after, you know, Siebel systems, probably, or Workday going after PeopleSoft. You took a license-based business model and you, and you made it an internet-delivered, you know, software application, you know, with a, with a you know, annual, annual access fee and, uh, you know, SaaS fee and, um, you know, different, different business model. And I think that's one way to really attack. I think you could have a very different um, user experience um, potentially. And I think that's where you, you, in the mobile moment, you might look to things like Instagram, which said, you know, both it both it took advantage of what was newly possible, um, the camera on a, on a phone in a special way. Snapchat was even more of that, right? Where you know the order of magnitude of images in Snapchat versus Instagram, you know, was tons more. And so they really said, "Wow, like easy mobile sh- photo sharing is now newly possible." And but it was a radically different user experience. Tinder was also that it was actually done by an incumbent, obviously Match Group, and built within. But like totally different user paradigm to. The idea of you know matchmaking and, and finding a date, obviously, than than match, which was classically done. I think the the other is to say what's what's radically newly possible that will get unlocked. Uber, obviously, with GPSs and 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 being able to you know orchestrate you know in the real world geolocated resources. Square with the idea of a you know mobile computing platform in your pocket. You could now have a mobile reader that could open up payments to a whole new audience, right? But some get to ride the advantage of distribution. Amazon emerges and takes advantage of distribution in a different way. Priceline, Expedia got to distribute you know, tickets in a different way, Ticketmaster, et cetera. I think that is not what's happening here, right? And, and, and so I don't think you can just, just do the sort of same thing, but, but there's no new distribution channel. I think you've got to really change the business model, change the user experience in a, in a radical way, change, what, change the value exchange that's happening. And so I'm captivated by, and it's really early and you're starting to see some teams thinking this way, um, where they, they uh, one thing I'm really curious about is, is teams who will say, I'm going to like do more of the work for you. I'm not going to sell you the software as a co-pilot, you know, I'm, I almost imagine going from co-pilot to command center where the SLA is, is no longer just on the software experience, but the SLA is on the work getting done. And I think ideas like that where you start to really change what someone's buying or change the product experience around, et cetera, I think is, is that, that leverages the new capabilities, new technology will make for some of the best challenge, you know, opportunities for startups to, to, to come in and challenge incumbents here. You spoke to, I think, a number of interesting things there. One, 
earlier point you made that I want to revive a bit and then kind of come back to some more of these changing business models was the GPU shortage as a kind of rate limiting step. And I think that's something that I I suppose prompts two different ways of thinking about it. One is, well, this question of, okay, maybe I want to train my own set of models. And there's a way of thinking about that as maybe not the best game to get into right now. But at the same time, you do see these ways people are getting by it. Of course, you've spoken to the open source models that are being trained, ways that these things are getting smaller. You've mentioned Cerebrus. We have these alternatives to GPUs, although, of course, importantly, things like compilers become a bottleneck for that. And at the same time, though, I think we are seeing totally different types of innovations. One thing that Matt Sheehan, this China scholar, spoke to when we were talking about the GPU restrictions on China was, are they going to figure out a way to start scaling more with trailing edge chips, not top-of-the-line GPUs. And just a couple of months later, it turned out that actually scientists in China were experimenting with these engineering things where you actually could get maybe more horsepower out of less powerful chips. And so I think that does speak to maybe there is more room for doing some of this kind of base layer of training than we might expect. And, you know, maybe if some of these techniques that work for trailing edge chips, if they really do work, scale in the appropriate ways, maybe that allows people to take them, apply them to the top of the line chips we have now or something and kind of leapfrog even further ahead, which I find kind of one interesting vector for this. But then the other about what you said is radically changing the UX, the value exchange. The UX is particularly interesting, too, because... When we think about these language models, all the embedded knowledge they have, the things we can do with them, I notice this frustration about, you are telling me that there is a language model that can do all of these things, and I'm going to interact with it via like a text box. That as like a user experience just seems like it could be improved in lots of ways. And so I guess I'm curious a little bit about for some of these different directions you highlighted for startups to come in, what some kind of positive vision, some things people are tinkering with, some of the kind of more basic ideas that they might have are kind of starting to look like and shape out as. Yeah. Yeah, to, to your first sort of perspective there um, of, of inference locally, the open source, um, you know, I think I was sort of speaking, I think I was speaking from the lens of I think one of the constraints, you know, you've seen a lot of announcements come out from some of the big companies, but you also haven't seen them, as many of them as they have been announced, actually be available. And I think part of that is setting up the guardrails and being confident and some of those things actually, right, go from, you know, demo to to production. But I think part of it is actually what level of reliability can you offer in the product from, from, you know, if you're using a a third-party model provider, OpenAI or whatever, and I think the guarantees they can offer there are still would not match as of right now uh, is what I've been hearing what people would expect of your actual software, right? Like if Salesforce offers this, that Salesforce or you know take Salesforce, whatever Shopify, you better be five nines, right, six nines or whatever of reliability. This isn't going to have that. So that's just sort of an interesting um, user expectation and uh, and the like to match. But I think that shortage here is a good thing because it is drive, helping further drive that innovation, right, of open source, of, of uh, local inference and other things. And so it's a good thing, but it, we may not be realizing all of what uh, will be possible presently, you know, as, as we have um, this rolling out in the same way that, you know, 
to analogize, if you said, wow, in 2009, we haven't done that much with GPS on the phone. It's like, we haven't at some level, but like not that many people have a GPS in their pocket yet. And so the opportunity was once everyone has a GPS in their pocket, right, coordinating all of that. But what do I do with it when I just personally have a GPS in my pocket? Okay, maps is different, but like what else, you know? And so some of it might take take a moment. To, to what is one seeing that um, I think is interesting? The, to, to use a broad lens, I might offer, I think that the there's a chance, there's an opportunity for the arc to have gone from, you know, we went from, um, cl- you know, we moved everything to cloud. And then there was a big arc of making everything collaborative, right? So, so think of Figma, think of Airtable, think of Google Docs. Uh, you know, there was a huge push to, to, to make everything collaborative. And you had sort of the idea of the collaborative cloud. I think we obviously are right in this moment now where we have the idea of a, a co-pilot. And to, you know, that's a, a new UX paradigm, a new, new product paradigm. And, but I think there's an opportunity, again, for the startups to come and, and build really differently, to move to maybe the command center, uh, the, the cockpit, the, uh, the control plane. I think the command center is probably the best framing of it for right now. And imagine, in some sense, think about if you've been up in SF, think about the cruise car where you get in the back of it and it's driving itself, but there's still a damn steering wheel in front of you. And then go look at their new car, like the Origin that's coming out. There's no steering wheel whatsoever. It's just going to be a wholly different UX experience. But what is beneath that, if you start to think about it, is, um, and, and differ that to say an Uber, there's all sorts of things that the, 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 the cruise, you know, or a self-driving car company, or a company that thinks in a command center mindset, you know, um, mindset versus a co-pilot mindset is taking on beneath that form factor. And so routing, right? Like which way, which actual route should you drive goes from, Hey, I'll give a suggestion to the Uber driver to no routing is a core part of the product experience. You're actually buying, you're buying it from me and I'm picking it, right? You know, customer service ain't going to be handled by someone in the car anymore. It's going to be handled more remotely. The architectural, there's all these sort of things that actually go into it. And so I think that startups here, that I'm starting to see some of them who'd say, I'm not going to give you the software to just do it. I'm going to take on some of the expectations of the work that the software should do. Take, let's use a trivial example, take customer service and the idea that um, you could sell like better Zendesk ticketing software or better intercom ticketing software. Or, something. or you could say, you, you expect your team to deliver you know, 90% five-star tickets or something. I'll deliver you 90% five-star tickets. Like that will be my SLA. And my product is delivering you that. Not my product is delivering you software that will allow you to hopefully have 90% five-star kind of tickets. And and, you could go probably do this in accounting. You know, you've started to see that there's a company that's out there called EvenUp. I don't know whether you've seen that that's in personal injury law where um, they say, I will write your personal injury. I forget what it's called, but like personal injury file brief thing that's submitted to insurance, to, to insurance companies. I think it is. I'll write that for you instead of a paralegal, but I won't give you the software to write your version of it and help you out. I'm just going to write it for you. I'm going to do it for you. And you might need humans oversight and all of that, but how many humans you need at what ratios and what I don't, you, you, you customer don't worry about that. Like you want a guarantee of an outcome. You want a guarantee of trust. You want someone to call up and blame. You want someone who has knowledge, expertise to make it amazing. And how much AI or not AI I use or whatever, like doesn't matter to you. I'm going to give you the service at 
a better price than anyone else with the, with the same um, opportunity. And so I think there's an op- in many ways we might look like some services opportunities that would previously have been being magnetically repulsed by venture capital <laughs> to run away from, actually maybe uh, coming into the fold and looking more like software opportunities. And so maybe that's one you know a fun analogy to the to to, to the idea of self driving cars, but then also um, you know connected into a few that that are the ones that are I'd say who knows whether that's right or wrong, you know time will tell in some ways, but they provoke a more future minded opportunity than just a co-pilot, which I really do believe is primarily going to be an incumbents game. To take the future-minded question in maybe a different way, you've spoken to a lot of the opportunities for developing this into doing more of the work a piece of software might do. But perhaps thinking back a little bit to benchling and sort of bio-focused companies, one thing that I spoke with Nathan Benesh about a while ago was his excitement about how things like diffusion models could be applied to maybe more non-obvious domains, things that people weren't looking at as much, because I think there's the very obvious text-to-image, text-to-video, that kind of everybody's excited about. But there are domains where there's maybe more nascent ideas for applying things. And you've already spoken to this earlier about language models for protein generation. I'm curious if there are any other new domains, things that you feel like people maybe aren't doing enough of that feel like fundamentally new applications of these systems that maybe you've got your eye on? I think bio is certainly one um, that I'm very interested in and uh, excited by, in part because this was that we as humans have created a language to describe it. And we know some of the, some of, we have some primitive understanding of it, but like we've never really been able to handle it, and 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 the you know the transformer architecture, and and, and actually people are using diffusion model architectures to the Baker Lab, the University of Washington has been playing with that um, again around proteins, but primarily it's sort of a, you know think of it as a cool language model architecture is allowing us to decode and navigate that terrain in in really interesting ways, and so. Um, that that's the most captivating. You obviously see it in robotics, obviously in the self-driving cars, um, very viscerally right now. So those those are probably the two two right now. But I'm I'm certainly very curious to see more. Fantastic. I think this might be a great place for us to close up. And so maybe my my final question to you, Miles, will be: We've spoken about a lot of exciting directions for AI right now in multiple different ways. What you're thinking about right at the moment. And so as a last question, I'll leave you with kind of a, a pretty open-ended one. For somebody to do, somebody today who is thinking about there is so much to keep up with and going on right now, maybe I'd like to build a company in this space. I'm either at the stage of I've got a pretty nascent idea or I'm still thinking through what is it that I'd like to do with all of these technologies. I'd like to build some kind of company. What would you encourage them to think about? Yeah. I'll go back actually quickly to your your prior question because there's one other dimension that I think I've been, I've been thinking about a little lately and and I haven't seen as much on but I'm curious for that you you asked sort of are there other areas where one thinks about this being applied there's also how much maybe these models in in existing areas, let's go lang, you know core language could diverge and 
in some sense, we've all been chasing like who's slightly better at whatever the better you know benchmark is right now. There's much more interesting ideas of divergence that I think will, could happen. Think about two ways. Well, think about one that's going to maybe in part drive it and the other um, that I think will drive it. We've mostly, these labs have mostly published a lot of their research uh, along the way. And so everyone's kind of seen it, copied it, used it, said, no, that's silly. And everyone's dropped it collectively or adopted it collectively. But as people stop publishing, you can go judge good or bad, you know, depending on what you think. But as they stop publishing, could techniques just end up diverging more? And so the ways in which we go about all of this could end up leading to different outcomes, not from necessarily a specific goal directed, but just the, the, the techniques and tooling and et cetera diverge. And so that's kind of interesting to, to think about as we've, we've in some sense been trying to look very similar, but could we look, end up just because of the inputs looking kind of more, more and more different? The other is, you know, RLHF has obviously been um, really important to um, usability in some application areas, arenas of these models. And that's the way we're um, giving feedback to these right now is human feedback. And I've been starting to wonder what would like, and I don't know whether this is possible or not. One place I have been talking with the team about it seems possible in, in images, but what could reinforcement learning from like outcome feedback be? Like if you were to do a sales oriented versus a customer service oriented versus an educational versus a, um, a legal, you know, domain, they should have very different, not just languages, but like goals, outcome orientations, right? And by the way, sales orientations for different sorts of companies are really different. Customer service orientations for different sort of companies are very different, right? Like imagine going to a five-star hotel customer service versus whatever the latest budget airline is, right? Or, or, or even worse, whatever the latest car rental customer service company is, right? Like really different, Maybe that could all be put in prompting, but but if human feedback is evaluating some of these, what what would outcome feedback actually be? Where you know sale happened or didn't happen actually because that orientation of the model or that orientation of imagery, etc., led to led to the outcome, not just the human judgment of the outcome, but the actual outcome we wanted, and that feeding back in and 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 leading to more divergence. This is probably a different idea of fine tuning, but from from that sort of outcome assessment. So. That that I think is um, I haven't seen too many people doing some of this stuff, or you know, but I'm but I'm I'm curious for um, in some sense what could look over time more like full stack experience application experiences in the set or, or, or and architectures maybe not because you're running the model yourself, right? Put that aside for a second. Maybe obviously if a foundation company is offering it, they have to offer it as a service and allow you to do it and some of those other things, but where your instantiation of model tied to the, the, the goal of the product and, and the, the value it's delivering and the need it's servicing really starts to interplay much more deeply in an interesting way. And so you might think about the image stuff applied to like, to make it tactical, a, an image for Discord bot and the Discord community that dis, that's there for fun is going to be very different to an image to make an e-commerce transaction happen. That image generation should just be so different. I, and we could make up some words to describe it and we could intuit it. But like 
we know that should be different and the feedback architecture should be different and there'll be subtleties in there even more so there will be and so that end up happening and so anyway we went back to 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 founders you know folks or well, not potential founders starting to uh starting to think about um you know should they should, should you form a company should you you know pursue this as a as a you know commercial entity look i would say um the big <laughs> it's sort of good and bad you know it's wonderful and exciting but the bad side of it is when money um is is easy and it's obviously pretty easy right now um in in this domain not having sort of that challenge and and the lowering of of the bar there so to speak you know let you off the hook for your own depth of commitment and excitement and you know an investor uh willing to just you know throw money um because they have an AI fund and they're they're you know chasing chasing a portfolio here most of those people um almost all of those people who are chasing their depth of commitment is is pretty shallow like there's services people that can deal with you after they're not they're probably not taking a board seat you know um and so they're not saying they're actually going to help you the amount of money they might do could be big but might actually be pretty you know some of these crossover funds and bigger funds are doing it like you know 10 million bucks to you know a multi billion dollar fund is just a rounding error like it's an it's an options ticket like in the same way that you might go buy a lottery ticket for fun and you're like yeah i assumed i lost the money like think of their 10 million dollars and i know it seems crazy because it's 10 million dollars but like is a lottery ticket um you know you can go look at the ai portfolio pages and 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 it's like like they get lottery tickets you know a bingo card or whatever card of a set of them they don't say that obviously and but 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 there's there's a lot of that mindset and and so what can seem wow and, and and amazing because they're like oh, I get ten million dollars. Obviously, you do get that. Is don't conflate that with uh, the depth of sort of your own commitment to something. And, and you really can't. It's hard to you can't unparent a child, and it's hard to sort of unbirth a startup in some ways, right? Like you, you brought this into the world. You're hiring people who've said they're there to go follow you, and you know things might fail and it might not work out, but if you don't have that excitement that that commitment not because things won't change right the ideas might change no one's asking you to like have perfect premonitions but but sort of the vector and the hypotheses you're going to go run on the the bigger hurdle is like really a deep gut confidence gut commitment to to say no I want to I want to go suffer a lot of pain you know Elon Musk calls it right what is it he's like a startup is chewing glass and staring into the abyss in a moment like this it doesn't feel like that at all. You're like, wow, I can get 5 million dollars here and I can quickly get 10 million dollars after and I can show up at this conference and I can be on this podcast and I can but they'll be in that arc chewing glass and staring into the abyss. Um and the the calling that you're that you're pursuing, the mission that you're chasing, your love for it, make sure it comes from a deep place and is not induced too much by the point in time. You know any other any other thought you know of like what sort of minds you know what sort of vertical to chase or whatever right has got to be personal like I I don't think um like requests for startups are kind of fun for ideation but like you should never go do someone else's like you know it's got to come from a deep place because it's going to take a long time and so I won't offer thoughts there outside of you know what I've what I have shared obviously earlier in this conversation around as a challenger 
provoking more of a step change uh, in, in the thinking, whether that's business model or user experience and, and, and the like. I think that's a great note to end on. And I suppose entrepreneurship is, as always, going to be a difficult area. But one thing I really appreciate that you highlighted in this conversation is a lot of the well-justified kind of blue sky optimism that we have looking forward in the field. I think that there is no end to the exciting ideas that I think people can and I hope they will explore. So I, I do want to thank you for, I mean, the work you're doing to help make that happen. And I, I appreciated your, your thoughts and perspectives. Daniel, so uh, I'm glad you're doing this and uh, thank you for having me join. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.